Securacy is proud to be a supporter of ASIO's podcast series. With insightful presenters and expansive subjects, the podcast series is a must if you want to keep at the forefront of the industry. Securacy, security workforce management software reimagined. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the ASIO Security Insider podcast and our guest today is Jacinta Carroll. Jacinta is a Senior Security and Defence Advisor. She is a Researcher and Strategic Advisor in Security and Defence and an internationally recognised security expert with experience in the Australian Government, think tanks and universities. Jacinta was the inaugural head of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute's Counterterrorism Policy Centre, is a senior fellow at the Australian National University's National Security College, and she holds visiting fellowships. She has taught security professionals in Australia, Indonesia, the Philippines, Singapore, the USA, and the Middle East, and is an experienced board member. Jacinta is presenting on day one of the ASIAL Security Conference at 10 a.m. as part of the Security Expo, and she will be discussing the global security outlook and what it means for Australian organisations. Jacinta, welcome to the podcast. Lovely to be with you, John. So we have had an interesting morning this morning uh, trying to line this podcast up. We seem to have done it on the day that the, uh, the US has announced that they have just managed to remove one of the key players from the other side of the board. Um, what sort of, so I suppose that's a good segue into what you're going to be discussing as far as the global security outlook. We've had an interesting probably 20 years since 2001 um, and and everyone for a long time sort of sat around after 2001 with bated breath waiting for the world to go back to the way it was previously and I think we've well and truly realised by now <laughs> there is no going back to the way that the world was. What does the world look like from your point of view? Well, in a word, John, complex, very complex. And it's great that you started with uh, 2001 and that 9-11 period because those of us who worked in the security environment and the defence environment and also academics studying international security all had a very neat flip from a stable but high security focused Cold War period almost seamlessly transitioning into a world where that wasn't the problem, it was asymmetric threats and the threat of terrorism. So again, fitting with the way that many of us uh, have run our careers, we were able to focus primarily on one major threat, one major target, and try to optimise ourselves to deal with that. Importantly for a country like Australia and, and really most other uh, small and middle powers in the world, that also meant it wasn't too hard to think about how we allocated our resources. And for those who are security professionals and practitioners working in non-security related environments, it also meant that it was fairly easy to figure out where do I get my information from, what is the threat, uh, and what do I need to be focusing on as I translate security concerns into my organisation. So what we're seeing now is a confluence of all these things. Um, it, it seems popping off at the same time. As you mentioned, John, um, yesterday my focus was looking at this very big picture, complex security environment as we prepare for the conference. Uh, but I was also providing some advice on what might be the, the next major counteroffensive for Ukrainian forces as they seek to take back Kherson and other parts of East Ukraine from Russia? Um, and is Russia trying to grab that vital piece of territory now? Um, the Secretary General of the United Nations, again, yesterday raised concerns about nuclear proliferation, but also the potential for a mistake, an actual nu nuclear attack. And of course, back into our region, major concerns about potential Chinese aggression, and even talk of a possible Chinese invasion of Taiwan. These are an extraordinary array of very, very significant security threats and ones that we have to try to work out what, what do we do about these? How do they affect us? And as you mentioned, of course, we all woke up this morning with the news that terrorism is back front and centre and that the Biden administration had successfully launched uh, an unarmed uh, air uh, 
unmanned, excuse me, aerial system attack on Ayman al-Zawahiri, the head of al-Qaeda, but importantly, the architect of major terrorist attacks and really the, the ideologue behind the kind of modern Islamist terrorism that we face now. So how do we navigate through all of that? An extraordinarily complex environment. Yeah. So let's go back and tackle each of those things that we just touched on, perhaps one by one, starting with, you know, in addition to the the, the death of El Zakawi this morning, we've got, um, it's almost coming up to a year now on the withdrawal of the US forces from Afghanistan. And I suppose the, the first question that I'd like to address is, what impact has that withdrawal of US forces had on the global outlook on terrorism? Because we know that – so there's two sides to this debate. Obviously, there's there's one side of the table that sort of says, well, goodness gracious, what was all that for? Um, and the other side that says, well, no, for 20 years the US mission was to go in and try and contain terrorism, slow down terrorism, prevent another 9-11 on US soil and so on. And they successfully did that to some degree for 20 years. But now we're in a different environment. We're in a different world theatre because they no longer have mass forces in Afghanistan. What does the US withdrawal from Afghanistan look like from a terrorism point of view? Yeah, it's a great question, John. And of course, the answer is very complex. But you're right, 20 years is a long time for not only the US, but Australia, um, most NATO members, New Zealand and others to commit people uh, and national treasure to trying to not only remove terrorism from Afghanistan, but try to give that country a chance to rebuild. And when we look back at those 20 years, there are really two phases of the uh, global intervention in Afghanistan. And that first phase, uh, removing it as a safe haven for al-Qaeda and removing the Taliban, very successful, um, as combat operations typically are for US-led coalitions. But then we entered that second, much more complex and difficult project, um, the International Security Assistance Force Afghanistan, which was leading a reconstruction plus security effort to do everything that it could to help Afghanistan transition to a more stable environment. And I say more stable. Um, those of us who, who worked on the Afghanistan project and who've been watching it for a long time know that it was unrealistic for the international community to think that they could go in and completely turn around a country that is very complex um, has its own culture, its own history, its own way of doing things, and is also um, interfered with by its quite extraordinary array of neighbours. Uh, just this week, we've seen clashes on the Iranian border between Taliban forces and, and Iran. Of course, Russia having occupied Afghanistan recently for 20 years itself, China, Pakistan and others. So it was always going to be a complex task. Um, the issue was, when do you withdraw? And we knew the US administration had promised that it would withdraw its military forces from Afghanistan and along with Australia and others um, left a year ago. That's problematic. It wasn't well planned or executed, but ultimately the, in the big picture, it's what had to happen. Uh, you can't have the international community continue to effectively run a country or even prop up a government. Um, the impact of that decision to move, however, uh, to withdraw completely from Afghanistan had unintended consequences. Effectively, the Taliban with very little effort took over the country. Uh, we see that the Afghan National Army, police and others essentially just laid down their weapons and let the Taliban come through to take over. Um, disappointing, yes. Um, would any of us have done differently if it was our country? Uh, do, you do you face a Taliban rule, something that you know and you can try to accommodate, um, perhaps leave the country if you can, or do you continue or go back to a civil war? Afghanistan will continue to be complex for a long time. The important thing about the news today of the um, successful targeting of Zawahiri, however, is that it shows that despite the withdrawal of 
the military element of the international community from Afghanistan, um, the US in particular still has eyes and ears right into the very heart of that country and into its administration. Zawahiri was living with his family in Kabul. He's very close to the Taliban. He pledged loyalty to them many years ago, and the Taliban see him as a friend. Uh, part of the Doha agreement was that the Taliban would, no, would not allow Afghanistan to be a base for any terrorist attacks in the future. Having Zawahiri there as a close and protected friend um, puts paid to that commitment. Yeah. So what we're seeing now is that the US and others might be gone from Afghanistan, but they can still strike whenever they want to. They can still influence it. And really importantly, at this contested time, that they're still committed to global order and the US is still leading the fight against terrorism globally. Yeah. I mean, I, I think we could get drawn into a, a long and protracted discussion around the withdrawal of US forces and other forces from Afghanistan and the, and the manner in which it was done. I, Again, for the people listening to this podcast, Jacinta is the expert. I am not. So let me make that quite clear from the outset. But, you know, it would seem to a lay Luddite like me when you talk about unforeseen consequences that there were some reasonably foreseeable consequences of leaving a newly trained Afghan National Army with virtually no support overnight and almost $80 billion worth of technology and armaments in the hands of the opposition force that would lead to the circumstances that we have now. But then again, I don't work in the US administration. I'm not privy to all of the factors that led to those decisions. I'm just left like many of us sitting there scratching my head wondering what on earth took place. But uh, if we move on from Afghanistan and we talk about what has then since happened since Afghanistan, we now move to the Ukraine and Russia and obviously the long-term potential implications for that because I think when you talk about unforeseen consequences, we're all living them right now, none so much as the, the Ukrainian people, but you know, inflation, challenges in energy resources, challenges with natural resources like food and grain and all sorts of other things are one aspect of it. But then, and we can come to that and talk about that and the impact that that has for Australian companies. But there's also the very real and scary, I suppose, prospect in my mind of uh, NATO assistance delivering uh, resources to the Ukraine being accidentally hit by a Russian airstrike or Russian forces and what that may, may then lead to for the rest of the NATO members and the world in general. So perhaps you could sort of talk us through some of this a bit. Mm. Well, uh, Russia and Putin's regime have certainly opened a can of worms. They went in really half-cocked, thinking that they could achieve a, a minimalist victory and have really dug their heels into the detriment of um, obviously Ukraine, which has suffered terribly from this ongoing invasion, but to the extraordinary detriment of the Russian people and the Russian economy uh, with knock-on effects around the world. When we look at the Russian economy and the, and the role that it plays globally, not as significant for Australia, but a significant player in the Indo-Pacific and obviously in, in Europe, um, a source of precious metals, uh, essential for our high-tech world, major provider of oil and gas, um, and also a major consumer of high-end retail goods. And if we think of those three sectors, who in those sectors in January 2022 would have thought that their entire business plan, uh, modalities of operation, and even retail frontages would all be turned on their head within just a few months? Um, it's not just withdrawing um, Chanel and other high-end um, providers out of the out of St Petersburg and Moscow, but the implications knock-on for the oil and gas sector, and now a global food crisis as the Ukrainian goods have been have been uh, have been held up. So a very very complex mix. From a security perspective, um, Russia's stepped across an unspoken red line that it would agree to um, be a spoiler, a nuisance player around the edges of international law 
but not really um, cross it significantly in major areas of consequence. What we're seeing in Ukraine, of course, the brutality, um, the lack of discipline within the Russian military, the lack of sustainment capability, uh, and their brute force and war crimes aren't news to those of us who've been watching what they have done in Syria, in Chechnya, uh, and, uh, and elsewhere. But Russia was somewhat allowed to get away with those things because they were partly in their own backyard or working with their own allies in complex existing conflict zones. To invade a modern uh, liberal democracy and an emerging developing liberal democracy as Ukraine is, and to push war into NATO's backyard um, is extremely concerning. I can't think of anything as significant as this for the global community since possibly the Cuban Missile Crisis or, or something like that, um, certainly not one that engaged so many powerful players directly than the Second World War. If we think of Russia's stated aims, um, and, and it's, it's, it's hard to go back even just a few months to the various forms of misinformation and propaganda that Russia has put forward, but it said that it wanted to put a buffer between itself and NATO, and it feared that there was a bit of an incursion up against its borders. Um, I'd encourage your listeners to pull out a map of Eastern Europe because it's a very focusing thing. Uh, and remember that Ukraine is effectively the size of New South Wales, and it has um, a, a long border with Russia, but it's not the longest border that Russia has on its Western front. And it was this that Russia was concerned about making sure that it could continue to maintain its influence on territories that already taken uh, in Ukraine uh, and have access to those goods, but also shore up its security. What's it done? Well, it's shown the world that it's really a paper tiger when it comes to its effective military capability. Sloppy sustainment, um, it's had to get rid of one of its initial aims of trying to take over Kyiv and establish its own, its own government there. Um, a, a military that can't work together well and effectively, a leadership chain that seems to have generals doing what um, junior officers and even sergeants would do in a modern Western military in terms of command and control. So it hasn't done well. But in terms of it, this aim of pushing back NATO, I, I'm amazed to see as a student of military history that a country like Sweden that chose to remain neutral through the First World War and the Second World War has now, because of Russia's aggression against Ukraine and its threatened aggression against the rest of Western Europe, has now chosen to become a member of NATO. It's chosen to move away from a foundation principle of that country. So yes, an own goal for Russia, and it's shown itself to be a shoddy player, but its willingness to sacrifice its own people uh, and, the, and the people of Ukraine and to do whatever it takes is a scary moment for the world. Yeah. I, uh, it's interesting to see that, you know, Putin's original stated aims of trying to shore up its its three sort of borders into Western Europe um, have largely failed only because we've now got a number of nations that were non-NATO members now joining NATO, as you pointed out before, along with Norway and Finland and a few others that I believe are sort of looking at it. Um, correct me if I'm wrong on that front. I'm not sure. Uh, but also, but Finland, so, Finland has committed to join. Yeah, uh, Norway was a member, but Finland is fascinating because it actually has the longest border yep. with Russia and um, fiercely defended itself against Russia previously and has had territory taken from it. Yeah, so I guess the question with regard to the the Russian side of things now, and and the one that the Ukrainian people would be looking at with bated breath is. How, do, how and when does this all end? And I know that that's a, a ridiculously complex question. If you want to make the universe laugh, just, you know, predict the future. Um, but, but how do you see this ending? Well, concerningly, John, um, it appears that there's no room for an easy diplomatic solution here. 
Um, we know that every time Russia has committed to doing something that's peaceful, it has followed up with exactly the opposite. Um, and, and every week we can look to something like this. The most recent being last week's uh, deal with the United Nations to allow uh, grain exports from Odessa uh, and through the Black Sea. What does Russia immediately do? Well, it has a strike on Odessa just to make a point. It says that it was a military target, but when you've committed to something that's that significant, you will do everything you can to ensure that that happens. Uh, we have seen Foreign Minister Lavrov of the Russian government pronounce in the past few weeks that there is nothing that Ukraine could possibly possibly put on the table uh, that would have Russia um, again sit down to try to negotiate peace. So what does that mean? Sadly, it means more conflict and that it appears that the only outcome for this conflict will be military defeat of one or the other players. Um, Ukraine is very well positioned to win. We have seen historic levels of support for Ukraine from NATO countries, from the EU. Australia, of course, have sent Bushmasters, which have been used um, to great advantage by Ukraine. And the United States and the United Kingdom, not only providing extraordinary levels of weaponry and ammunition, but they've been in there for years providing training and skills development for the Ukrainians and are continuing to do so. So there is a very, very high level of commitment by those who are sitting behind Ukraine supporting them that uh, we cannot countenance a Ukrainian defeat. So it's going to continue to be horrific uh, and bloody. Uh, we will continue to see uh, war crimes and atrocities committed by, by the Russian um, military and Russian-aligned forces and um, tragically we will continue to see imprecise use of strike weaponry, so missiles and artillery. Part of the reason, of course, is that Russia's just thrown everything at it and they've, they're running out of their precision-guided missiles. Yep. So they're just hammering um, in an attritional warfare. Given given a lot of the financial sanctions and economic sanctions that have been levelled against Russia since the beginning of this uh, conflict, do you see uh, perhaps some of the the more previously affluent oligarchs who were within the Russian structure, you know, saying enough is enough and taking it in their own hands to try and perhaps remove Putin from power? And would the removal of Putin be enough to stop this conflict or would it now just steamroll on without him? Yeah, great questions, John, and it really gets to this, this complex mix of, of power and money in, in Putin's Russia. Um, look, I've been listening to the Russia experts on this and sadly, it doesn't seem that there's any kind of movement, an alternative power movement that is seeking to oust Putin. So um, partly this is because he's very successfully over decades entrenched a regime that is completely loyal to him uh, and is full of his, his allies uh, politically and in terms of oligarchs. So it doesn't mean that he won't be pushed aside by some of them, but it does mean that we won't see much that is different because this is the established way of the Russian government at the moment. Um, the oligarchs, of course, have come to, to great um, uh, attention, public attention this year with sanctions and so on. They're an interesting mix. Uh, we know that many of them left Russia. Many of them have um, uh, access to funds outside. So life is a bit more difficult for them, but not so difficult um, that they would seek to necessarily go back to Russia and, and oust Putin. Um, those who remain in Russia, well, their fortunes rely upon a Russian victory and they will be continuing to support the regime that has allowed them to amass wealth. These oligarchs, of course, um, and in some ways you could say that Putin is, is one of this, this crowd, are people who became incredibly wealthy through corruption as state infrastructure was sold off um, in the, after the, the breakdown of the Soviet Union. So um, 
we have we have a, a country that that some commentators describe as a as a kleptocracy, uh, one that's run on criminality. So a, a complex mix of um, open, clean businesses, less clean businesses, and enabled by the government. It's very hard to unpick all of that. And unfortunately, there's nothing that I've seen, despite the heroic um, efforts of many uh, activists, political activists, opposition uh, spokespeople and journalists in Russia, there's very little that says that that country will significantly change. So am I to take that to mean then that let's just say someone within Ukraine, um, within their military circles or whatever it may be, were through a matter of circumstance and confluence and all the other things able to successfully deliver a copper jacketed business card to Mr. Putin or perhaps sweeten his tea with a little bit of Novichok in some way, um, we would still see this rolling on regardless of whether he was there or not? Well, we'll see the posturing of Russia and Russia as um, an outlier player in international affairs. But should President Putin be removed, it would give the Russian government an out. Um, the annexation of eastern Ukraine definitely uh, and the planned uh, takeover of the Ukrainian government as a, as a possible retained aim, these are things that President Putin has linked his presidency to. Uh, we've seen the pictures of him next to the statue of Catherine the Great, talking about a great Russian empire, talking about the greatness of the former Soviet Union and trying to bring these things back together. Um, so it's very clear that the regime in Russia is absolutely focused on expanding and building the territory, the territory uh, and territorial control of, and influence of Russia into Eastern Europe. Uh, at the moment, it doesn't look like they can they can sustain that. So what we're looking into the future is what would that compromise look like? Uh, for Putin, it's very difficult to see that there could be any compromise. Yet there's one thing that the Russian government always has in its back pocket, and that is that propaganda is the way that it communicates with its own people as well as with the outside world. Uh, we've seen the spin of the way that the so-called special military operation um, against Ukraine has been described within Russia. If Russia failed in Ukraine, if there was a backstep, we can be certain that the regime would spin this into a Russian victory and would emphasise any concessions that had been made by Ukraine and Western countries. Um, a sticking point right now is what would happen with those territories that Russia controlled before February 2022. And that includes Crimea, which had been annexed, and parts of the Donetsk region, um, uh, Luhansk and um, Donetsk. So that 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 does the Donbass get taken back entirely by Ukraine? Is Crimea restored to Ukraine? And listening to Ukrainian President Zelensky, that's where the Ukrainian government is seeing its intentions now. No accommodation of Russia. Okay. I suppose the longer the conflict draws on, the, the greater the propensity that NATO supplied resources travelling into the Ukraine especially as you alluded to before with Russia running through most of its precision munitions and now kind of taking a bit of a spray and pray approach to what's going on, one of those NATO convoys might accidentally be struck whilst delivering resources. What would that look like? Because we know that if, if a NATO convoy is struck or we believe that if a NATO convoy is struck and then an Article 5 charter was called and said, okay, NATO's now been attacked, we need to go in and, and, you know, act against Russia and that NATO carried out any sort of significant strike against Russia, there is a very high probability that Russia may 
respond in a nuclear way. Now, that doesn't mean to my mind that they would necessarily target a capital city, but they would possibly potentially be likely to launch a targeted nuclear strike against, say, a US carrier group in the ocean somewhere, which would just then steamroll into a huge, horrible ball of consequences. What what does that look like if NATO were drawn into this? And what are the chances NATO does get drawn into this? Yeah, it's a great question, John, and it's it's also a very likely scenario, um, this inadvertent hitting of uh, NATO troops, NATO uh, equipment and, and others. And what we've seen is that while you have Russia um, targeting in a very imprecise way, um, or in some cases we, we see that they have targeted in a precise way against uh, unlawful targets, it is highly likely that NATO elements will be caught up. Um, we've seen uh, Russian um, strike uh, close to Ukraine's borders with Poland significantly and with others. We will likely see things that pop over into uh, across another border as well as uh, as well as hitting equipment and troops. Uh, we've seen Russia target training facilities in Ukraine where NATO troops have been present. So the likelihood of this kind of scenario occurring, as you've described, is very, very high. Um, the issue is NATO decision-making around any possible escalation. What we've seen is a very, very disciplined and shared commitment amongst NATO members to ensure that there is no um, easy um, trigger for NATO engagement with Russia uh, or US engagement with Russia. And you're right to, to conceive that any escalation could quickly see Russia um, seeing this as an excuse to target uh, US um, elements. Yeah. Just this week, we've had Russian Navy Day and um, you might have seen President Putin launched uh, a new strategic doctrine and it specifically named the United States as the enemy of Russia. So you can see the escalation in rhetoric from Russia that this is not just about Ukraine, nor is it about NATO. They see it very much about the US. The US and NATO in a very disciplined manner are doing everything they can to calm that down, to de-escalate and ensure that this conflict remains something that is contained to within Ukraine's borders. And where it's not, where it inadvertently or consciously targets others, that this is contained, that it is, doesn't escalate on the NATO side. Um, this is going to be tricky. Russia knows that this is a rub point. They are seeking to provoke. Uh, we know this because the doublespeak of Russian propaganda talks incessantly about provocation from their part. So we know that they are, are seeking to provoke and also seeking to break up that solidarity of the NATO group. Um, a strength and a weakness of the NATO alliance is that decisions uh, amongst the members must be unanimous. That's problematic when we're looking at Sweden and Finland joining NATO but it's actually helpful when you're looking at um, invoking Article 5 uh, as, as a, a real attack against a NATO member. Uh, is What is an attack? One or two strikes near a border, something that targets NATO equipment and NATO troops, is that an attack on a NATO member or not? And I think that we're seeing calm heads prevail in the Western European NATO slash EU environment, trying to make sure that regardless of what Russia does, um, there'll be a very, very high threshold before NATO itself is directly involved in this. And we've shown that despite extraordinary provocation, to use the Russia's favourite term, um, that NATO is not being directly involved in the conflict. Sure. So I guess all of that brings me to the third point that we initially set out to discuss, which was China and, and the question of how much of what we have seen occurring with Russia, with uh, Putin overplaying his hand on the global stage and having all sorts of unforeseen uh, economic sanctions levelled against them, not previously witnessed in, in modern history, 
How much of that has given China pause to make them think, oh, hang on, maybe launching an attack into the Taiwan Strait and having a go at Taiwan wouldn't be a great idea because the world is clearly not prepared to stand by and watch these sorts of things happen in this day and age? Or is it the complete opposite? Is China looking at this thinking, great, well, everyone's attention's over there. The world stage is open for us to whip in here and do what we need to and uh, and everyone's too busy to know what's going on until it's all over and done. Yeah, look, there's, there's extraordinarily parallels, John, between um, Russia's view of Ukraine, its posturing, its rhetoric, and, of course, following on with action. And what we've seen... Uh, with China's statements on Taiwan over the years. And we've seen those ratchet up in in terms of aggression, um, regular um, uh, PLA incursions into Taiwanese airspace, um, regularly pushing out uh, against and threatening um, the US and other elements if if they're operating in and around Taiwan. So we've seen President Xi state that Taiwan would be taken and forcibly if necessary. That sounds very much like the rhetoric that we heard from Russia last year and continue to hear now that they've taken that step of crossing the border and invading. But the Chinese government, as you've noted, would be looking at this very, very closely. Um, What's happened in Ukraine isn't what anyone really expected. The the sanctions, as you've mentioned, um, unheard of. Just extraordinary reaction by the global community, absolute condemnation by the General Assembly of the United Nations. So China doesn't want to have that kind of impact. Um, We know that they're looking not only carefully at the military impact, um, one part is how distracted is the United States, how much of its military effort and its planning is now focused on Europe and away from the Indo-Pacific region and Taiwan. Well, the answer there would be a fair bit, but the United States still has the largest military in the world and an expansive presence across the Indo-Pacific, as well as uh, a very sophisticated alliance network. So it's not just the US versus China over Taiwan. Um, The US has uh, very close relationships with most of China's neighbours in the region and very, very close and deep military relations. Yeah. So we know that there, a lot of US equipment has been distracted and that will be featuring into the Chinese calculus of how prepared uh, and, and is the US to respond in, in dealing with Taiwan. But we know that China's been very concerned by the economic sanctions. Uh, we do know there's very clear open reporting about uh, China querying um, the effect of sanctions, the legality of sanctions that have been put in place against Russia. And significantly, this includes whether the Chinese government would be able to access its uh, monetary reserves, its gold reserves and cash reserves. Of course, this has been cut off to Russia. So the queries are coming in as China is taking notice of what's been going on with Ukraine and seeking to inform itself of this. My sense is that the Chinese government would have been very surprised at the strength and the coherence of the international response to Russia's aggression. And that should have it take note. Uh, And uh, we as the international community trying to avoid conflict and and, uh, looking for Taiwan to retain its independence would hope that this would uh, lead China to step back from its rhetoric of annexing Taiwan. Unfortunately, it appears unlikely it will, it will change this, but it might slow down the time frame of a Taiwanese takeover. And it also might hedge uh, away from a forcible military activity into continued economic and other coercive measures um, by China, if you like, operating in the grey zone in order to avoid the international outrage that comes with an overt physical invasion of another country. So certainly the Chinese government would be very, very focused on learning everything it can and informing its plans uh, for Taiwan. 
Is it not the case, though, that China is, and again, you're the expert here, not me, so please feel free to correct me, but is it not the case, though, that China is far more vulnerable than Russia insofar as China imports the vast majority of both its agricultural and its energy resources and were the world to take exception to what China was potentially doing, were you to park a carrier group in the China Sea and just cut them off from all of those imports, China would be in huge strife and knows this. Yeah, it's it's a great it's a great point, John, because one of the big misunderstandings about Chinese economic and military power is uh, just how constrained they are militarily. Um, China is not an expeditionary military; it has built up a lot of uh, numbers and a lot of capability um, significantly through um, stealing the intellectual property of other developer countries, but then improving upon it itself. So on paper, it has a very good military, but other than a few skirmishes, um, notably regularly with the Indian military um, on the border, uh, we haven't seen much engagement by the military. Uh, probably the, the largest uh, presence, visible presence of the PLA is its Navy and Air Force as it has pushed out and sought to patrol their claimed areas through the South China Sea uh, and into um, uh, East Asia um, around Taiwan and disputed territories with Japan. But we haven't seen exactly how capable it is. And that has some, some parallels, again, with Russia. Um, looking good on paper, but how would you actually um, operate in a, a contested you know, hot conflict? Especially when you're coming up against economy, a country. Sorry, I was just going to say, especially when you're coming up a country against a country like the US, who is possibly as match fit and ready as they've ever been coming off the back of 20 years of conflict research, development, updating of tactics, training, principles and everything else. Yeah, and there's a there's something that that's discussed a lot in military strategic circles, and that is the flexibility, adaptability, and if you like the can-do attitude of volunteer militaries in liberal democracies. We can see that the this delegated command and control, the very high levels of training of professional militaries mean that quite extraordinary things happen. We see this in the way the Australian military operates in the US and it's and the absence of this is one of the defining features of Russia's poor performance in Ukraine. Um, China is an authoritarian country itself. It, it, it remains to be seen just how effective their military might be. On the economic side of the equation, um, you're absolutely right when you talk about China's reliance on the global economy. Um, we hear in Australia a lot about China being our number one trading partner. And, and in recent years that this was thrown up as a salve to any concerns about security. Um, we shouldn't really engage with or worry too much about China's security because we rely upon them so much for trade. Uh, I'm not an economist, but I know that trade is only one part of an economy and it's a two-way thing. Uh, foreign direct investment, um, diversified trade and other elements build up a, a strong economy. And what we've seen with China is that it is absolutely reliant upon uh, trade, particularly with uh, G20 countries, you know, the big economies of the world, including Australia. And these are the very countries who are allied with the United States and who, who would be against any invasion or forced annexation of a sovereign country such as Taiwan. Um, we've seen, again, in the Russia context and more recently in China, a diversification by these countries away from a reliance upon Chinese trade. Uh, and uh, Chinese goods. This is a really significant move. And in some ways, again, going back to the impact of sanctions against Russia, um, this is why China will be, we would hope, sensibly considering what the impact of sanctions might be. Um, the economy is not in a great state in China at the moment. It's not as diversified as it could be. Uh, a lot of its, um, uh, its 
paper worth has come from uh, it, the, the yuan being essentially backed by the sovereign government. So it's not really a market-based um, uh, currency in the way, for example, that the Australian dollar is. We know where the Australian dollar is pegged against the United States dollar. The yuan really is backed up by, um, by the Chinese government first before it plays against the other currencies. And its buying power, again, uh, relied absolutely upon uh, trade with countries such as, such as ourselves and also being able to maintain that buying power to look after an increasingly middle-class population. It hasn't got much leeway there and the, there's going to be a tricky balance between continuing uh, economic strength that has come from engagement, particularly with the West, and with a booming Southeast Asian economy, which is where we're seeing the next wave of economic growth. And any kind of military aggression or China becoming potentially a pariah state like Russia would really detract from its economic strength. So do you see a scenario moving forward in which China doesn't take a swing at Taiwan? Well, it's interesting to see um, if we'd been talking about this a couple of weeks ago, um, we might be a bit more sanguine about it and say, well, yeah, you know, they're, they're sensible, they're looking at what's happening in Russia and as a rational actor might consider that there's too much to lose by having an overt invasion. Um, but the rhetoric that we've seen ratcheting up around Nancy Pelosi's visit, the, um, the US um, Congress Speaker of the House, um, potentially looking to, to visit Taiwan, um, has shown that the Chinese government isn't stepping away from its threatening rhetoric, um, stating that the US would be provoking it into an invasion of Taiwan. So this is concerning. Again, um, President Xi, who uh, has elevated himself essentially into being leader for life uh, of the Chinese state, and uh, his, his thoughts have been preserved in the Constitution along with Mao's. This is a very, very powerful man who, whose legacy has been linked to retaking Taiwan, as he says, incorporating it into China. Right. So concerning to see statements being made by the leader of China uh, and by the Chinese government asserting what they would do about Taiwan because it's very difficult for them to backtrack from these commitments. Okay. So we've laid out a very complex sort of overview of a global tapestry and all sorts of security concerns. I could talk to you about this all day, but I'm going to ask you one final question. Your presentation at the security conference in just over two weeks is that the presentation in which you take all of these threads and draw them together in the context of, well, what does this mean for Australian organisations and their security managers and how do we navigate these challenges? Yeah, so my presentation at the conference will be obviously limited in time. So just an overview, a taste of the complexity of this environment. And we hope to generate some good discussion within um, those attending because we have very smart career security practitioners there, um, yeah, others who uh, are trying to figure out how to engage and navigate through this world. So we'll be talking about um, some of these big issues, others that affect Australia as well. And while there's no one neat answer, uh, what I will be talking through is um, some tools, um, networks, uh, resources, and ways to at least be aware of these and put Australian businesses and, this, and Australia's security in the best possible position to be aware of what's going on, um, manage the risk of um, conflict and disruption in the global security environment and put our businesses and organisations in the best position to be able to nimbly and flexibly deal with these and, and to survive these kind of shocks. We do know that they'll keep coming. In the last two years, we've dealt with bushfires, floods, pandemic, and now a global food crisis. Uh, we have a resource crisis um, undulating, uh, popping up and down. Um, 
we're becoming pretty good at knowing how to deal with this. And the important thing as security practitioners is having, in some ways, an all-hazards approach, firm ourselves up to be able to deal with these things, but also, very importantly, be engaged, understand what's going on in the world, and really understand, take those, those two or three extra steps to see what does this mean for Australia, for our region, for my organisation, for my sector and for my company. Um, this is a difficult environment, uh, but it is the one that we have. It's the one that we have to work through. And that's what we'll be talking about at the conference. Jacinta, thank you very much for your time. It has been a genuine pleasure talking this through with you and uh, I look forward to catching up with you at the conference. So for those people listening, if you would like to hear more from Jacinta, she will be presenting at 10 a.m. on the 17th of August at the Security Conference at the ICC in Darling Harbour. Thank you, John. Um, thanks for the great work that you do with this wonderful podcast. Um, I do recommend it to everyone i know your listeners already know how good it is it's certainly on my playlist um, keep doing what you're doing and thank you for bringing such an inquiring and knowledgeable mind with these difficult questions to to a complex issue it was a wonderful discussion thank you thank you again and ladies and gentlemen don't forget if you've enjoyed this podcast there are plenty more like this one in the asial security insider series you can find them on uh, Apple iTunes, Spotify, Blurberry, uh, the Google Play Store and all the other great places that you can find amazing podcasts. And we look forward to catching you on the next episode. Have a great day. Security is proud to be a supporter of ASIAL's podcast series. With insightful presenters and expansive subjects, the podcast series is a must if you want to keep at the forefront of the industry. Security. Security workforce management software reimagined.